better off dead. He sits at the broad desk in his corner office, the barrel of the revolver pressed against his temple. How many times has the explosion gone off in his head? A thousand times? Ten thousand? What a joke. Try a thousand times an hour. Ten thousand and more times a day. Three million times a year. For thirty-three years. One hundred and twenty million explosions. And holy Christ, there's another. And another. And another. As plentiful as heartbeats. Wife, kids, work, play, booze, drugs, whores, gambling, mountain climbing, skin diving, heli skiing, to the ends of the earth and back. No reprieve, ever. In bed at night, in bed in the morning, in the middle of a meeting, in the middle of a kid's football game, in the middle of a jaw-dropping run down some wild, snow-covered glacier in British Columbia, in the middle of an orgasm, for Christ's sake. Kaboom! It wasn't his first amphibious landing. It was his ninth, including the early ones when he'd come in late with the engineers, the beaches secured save for the occasional landmine or Jap who'd only been pretending he was dead. Slanty-eyed bastards would lie there face down in the damp sand for hours, not moving a muscle, not even breathing. Scrawny, half-starved nips could hold their breath for days. And then you'd walk by carrying med supplies or maybe ammo cases and the little some bitches would pop up and shoot you in the face or bayonet you in the balls. They always went for the balls. Brass got wind of that crazy shit and right away ordered the MPs to go around and level around into every nip head dead or faking dead. Sweat pours off his face. His hand shakes. His finger twitches on the trigger. He wishes his finger would just pull the damn trigger already. Pull it and be done with it. Done with the explosions. Kablam! Is the office door locked? Did I lock the door? Did I? Christ! Mildred or one of the partners walks in and sees me sitting here with this gun shoved up against my temple? Jesus! With lieutenants dying faster than goldfish, they made him a captain in no time. He didn't want to be a captain. He didn't want to be an officer or an enlisted man. He didn't want to be in the Corps, in the South Pacific, fighting Japs. He wanted to be back at school, back in Bethlehem, playing split end for the engineers, drinking, chasing girls, trying to get lucky. When they made him a captain, his luck ran out. No more mop-up landings. He'd be taking his company ashore in the first wave. A hundred guys, two lieutenants, ten sergeants, ten squads, his command. Two Higgins boats, Captain, the Major instructed. Fifty men per boat. That's a stretch, I know. Overloaded, to be sure. A third boat with thirty-five or so per boat would be best. But we don't have three boats to spare. So, so you squeeze them in, Captain. Make do. Be a Marine. Yes, sir. You ride in the head boat. Let your men see you. Let them hear you. Pilot will get you into the shallow water before dropping the ramp. Get your men ashore without any bullshit and secure the beachhead, Captain. Secure the beachhead. He mutters aloud as he glances out the window at the Big Apple, a quarter of a mile below. 
From his sweet corner office, he sees the Hudson, the south end of Manhattan, the Statue of Liberty. He can practically see out to the leafy burg in Jersey, where his enormous center hall colonial sits atop a prominent bluff. He can see his long-suffering wife and his well-educated kids and his golden retrievers and his race car he trailers up to Lyme on weekends. And to the south, to the south, he can almost see his beach house and his fishing boat. Half a mile offshore, beyond range of the Jap artillery, the Higgins boats were dropped into the Pacific from the ATAs, Attack Transport Ships. The men, scared, shitless, and sweating, started going over the sides, down the ropes, and into the boats. Their captain, feigning bravery, encouraged his men, assured them Jap resistance would be minimal. They'd be safely on the beach in no time. During an unexplained delay in the loading of the Higgins boats, he made one last mad dash for the head. His heart raced. His brain pounded. He felt faint. He couldn't get a decent breath. He wanted to hide somewhere in the bowels of the ship, not emerge until the attack, until the whole goddamn war was over. In the head, he vomited. And then he vomited again. And then he just barely got his pants down and his ass on the seat before half his insides washed out through his anus. And then, an emotional and physical wreck, he pulled himself together and returned to his command. The loading of the Higgins boats had resumed. He had to hurry over the side and scurry down the ropes, the last aboard. He dropped into the overcrowded Higgins boats. The men, shoulder to shoulder, pressed together like sardines in a can. That's when he realized he was not in the lead boat. The lead boat had already pulled away. He was in the rear boat, in the rear with the gear. The company's captain was in the rear boat. For 33 years, he has told himself, assured himself, that climbing into the wrong boat had been an accident, nothing but a goddamn accident, a bloody mishap, done not on purpose, but merely in haste, because he had been in the head, puking and shitting his brains out. Had he not told himself this, assured himself of this over and over, 10,000 times a day, he would have blown his brains out years ago, decades ago. It was an accident, a fucking accident. But still, it'll be sad for the kids, he thinks, when I'm dead. Sad and embarrassing, having to try to explain why the old man killed himself. But, but, but what's the alternative? Another 33 years of explosions and suffering and depression that mostly manifests itself as anger and rage? Fuck it. Just fuck it. The wife... She'll be shocked, but after that passes, she'll be, Christ, she'll be happy. Happy to be done dealing with me and my war bullshit. And who could blame her? The poor woman has suffered long enough. Plus, there's plenty of dough now, plenty of dough. She'll live like a queen. And if she wants to find another guy, some guy who didn't fight in the war, didn't get crushed by the damn war. The explosion occurred less than a hundred yards off the beach at Bougainville. Until then, the flotilla of Higgins boats had made their way toward the island with little resistance. Jap artillery had been minimal. There had been some machine gun fire, but even that had been erratic and half-hearted. 
he had actually started to believe that they would take the beach without a fight, without casualties, and no one would ever know he hadn't been in the lead boat. Fifty yards ahead, he saw half his company hunkered down in the lead Higgins boat. He knew he should be with them and was worried about the consequences once his commanding officer found out he'd brought up the rear. A Type 99, 81mm Jap infantry mortar caused the explosion. Other than their rifles and a few machine guns, it was all the Japs had left to fight the amphibious landing. They'd waited until the Yankee dogs grew close before firing. Most of the mortars landed harmlessly in the sea, but this one landed dead center in the lead boat. And in an instant, 50 Marines were dead, blown to smithereens. Half the company, his company, right there, just ahead, not 50 yards out in front. And now, gone. No trace, other than some splintered plywood and random body parts floating on the surface of the sea. Dead. 50 dead Marines. He pulls the barrel of the revolver away from his temple, sticks the gun in the bottom drawer of his desk, locks the drawer up tight, and assures himself he'll do it tomorrow. Definitely, he will do it tomorrow. Kaboom! Kablam!